When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. It's the 10th anniversary of the financial crisis. The most important fact about the recovery is that it was a disaster all over again, and we're facing the political consequences today. Harold Meyerson will explain. Also, it's the 25th anniversary of the day President Bill Clinton presided over a handshake on the White House grounds between PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat and Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin agreeing to the Oslo Accords, which we were told laid the foundation for peace between Israel and a Palestinian state. Muin Rabani will comment on everything that went wrong. But first, the big story of the week, charges of attempted rape of a 15-year-old girl against Brett Kavanaugh. For that, we turn to Katha Pollitt, poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. Her most recent book is Pro Reclaiming Abortion Rights. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on. Well, uh, the news at this hour is shifting. We are speaking Tuesday afternoon. The Senate Judiciary Committee has changed its plans. Right now, they want to reopen the hearings on Monday to take testimony from the accuser, we call her, Christine Blasey Ford and Kavanaugh. At this hour, Christine Blasey Ford has not confirmed that she will appear at those hearings, apparently because she wants an FBI investigation first. A lot of people are agreeing with her that the Senate Judiciary Committee is not really a fact-finding group, and it would be better for them to have facts as discovered by the FBI. Uh, But please remind us, maybe the place to start is what is called the recent allegations of sexual assault against Brett Kavanaugh. Christine Blasey Ford claims that when she was 15, 30-odd years, 30-something years ago, Kavanaugh pushed her into a room at a party, locked the door, held her down, put his hand over her mouth when she tried to scream and tried to get her clothes off. And he was aided and abetted, she says, in that endeavor by another private Catholic schoolboy who turns out to be Mark Judge. And Mark Judge is this kind of right-wing oddball who has said both... I don't remember this, and no, no, this would never have happened. Brett Kavanaugh is a wonderful guy. And it turns out that Mark Judge, in addition to saying a whole raft of racist and sexist, terrible, terrible things, was the author of a high school memoir called Wasted Tales of a Gen X Drunk. (laughs) And in which he says he, he spent most of his high school years in a total blackout, alcoholic blackout, and along with him for some of this was his good friend, Bart O'Kavanaugh. <laughs> oh, 
He's not not too good with the uh, with the pseudonyms there. This is the corroborating witness for Kavanaugh, and the only other person who the accuser Christine Blasey Ford says was in the room. We would like to hear his testimony too. Although his testimony probably should be that he was blackout drunk most of his high school years, and therefore can't testify one way or the other. Let's consider what Kavanaugh's defenders have been saying. They have switched from boys will be boys when they're in high school. They all get drunk and try to rape 15-year-old girls. He's not saying that anymore. The White House is not saying that anymore. Now he is saying she is lying. Much stronger claim The Wall Street Journal editorial page is taking the lead in defending Kavanaugh. They said on Tuesday, this is simply too distant and uncorroborated a story to warrant a new hearing or to delay a vote. We've heard from all three principals. There are no other witnesses to call. Democrats will use Monday's hearings as a political spectacle to coax Mr. Kavanaugh into looking defensive or angry and to portray Republicans as anti-women. Odds are it will be a circus, close quote, Wall Street Journal lead editorial. So the defender's view is it's just a he said, she said situation. There's no way to resolve who's telling the truth. In America, you are innocent until proven guilty. She doesn't have proof. And therefore, he should be confirmed and become a Supreme Court justice. What do you, what do you think? Well, I have a couple of things to say about that. One is, this is not a trial. Nobody is going to go to prison. So I don't think the guilty until proven innocent, sorry, innocent until proven guilty thing is necessarily the standard we want here. Um, remember, Doug Ginsburg, years ago, was nominated for the Supreme Court and had to withdraw because, oh my God, he smoked some pot. Um, so standards for getting on the Supreme Court at least used to be higher than not has not been convicted of a felony. Um, It's true that in America, you have a right to be presumed innocent in a criminal trial, but no one has a right to a seat on the Supreme Court. Exactly. But there's more and that it is not true that there is no evidence. There is the evidence that in 2012, long before any of this, she told a therapist about this episode because, she said, it had caused so much pain and continual trauma in her life. So, I mean, you have to take that a little, I mean, all these people, as one person described as rough horseplay. I mean, please, these things have profound effects on people. These things are very, very psychologically damaging. She said when he put his hand over her mouth, she was afraid he would kill her inadvertently. Uh, I mean, you've got this big drunk guy on top of you, and then his friend, the other big drunk guy, jumps on top of both of you. I mean, that's pretty scary. So I would say that it is crucial, it is crucial that, that Mark Judge be called, because he is the only witness, even though he says he doesn't remember it. He is the only potential witness. And I'm sure the Republicans don't want to do that because he's such an oddball and loose cannon on the deck. So it will make the Republicans and Kavanaugh look bad, deservedly so. 
when they're saying things like you're lying, you know, or that this is all a political front on the part of the Democrats, well, that doesn't really fit in with the thing that a lot of nation readers are probably complaining about, which is that Dianne Feinstein received a letter from her five weeks ago and didn't turn it over to, she turned it over to the FBI, but she didn't turn it over to other Democrats. She didn't make a fuss about it then. Trump himself has challenged Feinstein on that uh, in his remarks on Tuesday morning. He said the fact that Feinstein had this all through the hearings and didn't make it public until the last possible minute shows the that this is all a politically motivated circus to try to derail the nomination, and that is wrong and unfair and political manipulation. Why did Dianne Feinstein delay this? Why did it take so long for her to make this public? Well, Christine Blasey Ford didn't want to go public. She was, you know, the press got hold of this, and then eventually you had reporters camping outside her door. But she originally did not want to go public for obvious reasons. She said, I didn't want to come forward because of my anguish and terror about retaliation. And we all know that this is so often what happens when women come forward and accuse someone, especially a powerful, famous person, of a sexual assault or sexual harassment. It doesn't meet with, even in the day of the days of Me Too, it doesn't meet with a happy response. And so you can see why she would be very wary and why Dianne Feinstein would respect that. But anyway, the point is that President Trump's claim that this was withheld until the last moment as a political ploy really doesn't hold water. Kavanaugh's defenders have another argument. Uh, she didn't tell anyone about this until she, she spoke with her therapist, which was something like 35 years later. If this was so traumatic and terrible for her, uh, why didn't she tell somebody about it at the time? We're talking about a 15-year-old. Um, so I think the number of teenage girls who are assaulted and say nothing about it is astronomical. And in fact, uh, you can go on Twitter and there are all these women saying, oh, something similar happened to me. I never told anyone. You know, you don't want your par- you think your parents will think less of you. Maybe you were out later than you were supposed to be. You know, there's just any number of reasons why you would just try to put the whole thing aside. So let us imagine what will happen when Christine Blasey Ford finally appears before the Senate Judiciary Committee. The Republicans who will be on the attack trying to undermine her story, I've heard they're all white men. Chuck Grassley, Orrin Hatch, Ted Cruz, some some of our favorite people. The committee Democrats, on the other hand, include Kamala Harris, Maisie Hirono, Amy Klobuchar, and of course, the ranking Democrat, Dianne Feinstein. How are the Republicans going to look? How are they going to look to women voters 60 days before the midterm elections? Well, I don't think they're going to look good. It will be a reminder, uh, certainly, of the Anita Hill um, hearings, which were a whole bunch of old white men ganging up, including some Democrats. Yeah. Uh, like Joe Biden played a terrible role but ganging up on Anita Hill, and as a result, we got we got Clarence Thomas on the court, and where he still is. So it, they, it will not look good, and they have got to be aware of that, that they will look sexist, out of it, old, cruel, 
what's the word, hypocritical, all kinds of words like that. It seems to me Trump is not going to abandon Kavanaugh on his own accord. In Trump's world, all battles are short-term, zero-sum affairs. He doesn't want to be the loser. And because ditching a nominee over a sexual assault allegation suggests something about his own fitness for office. But, but ultimately, ultimately here's the, here's the significant thing. It's not his choice. Seems to me the people who will take the lead in deciding what happens to Kavanaugh are, first of all, Susan Collins, and after her, Lisa Murkowski. If they say they will vote for Kavanaugh, despite the charges against him, I think probably all the other Republicans will follow their example, and he'll win, you know, 51 to 49. If uh, if Susan Collins says thumbs down, I think Kavanaugh will know he's finished and, and he will withdraw. So in my opinion, all this comes down to what, what Susan Collins is going to do. Am I, am I way off base with that? So she's the most powerful human being in the West at the moment. Yeah. Uh, she has said if he is lying, that is disqualifying, which is very important. You know, if you want to read the tea leaves that way, you can see she's kind of edging up a little bit to maybe, hmm, maybe this isn't so good. And then there's Lisa Murkowski. And Lisa Murkowski has this whole other issue I don't really understand, having to do with Alaska and Hawaii. So she was never quite as keen on on uh, Kavanaugh as um, some of the others. So maybe the, re- the Republican women, these two Republican women, will sink the whole thing. Or maybe, as uh, Republican women have tended to do, they will just go along with it and say whatever they need to say. Yes, Susan Collins' line, if he is lying, that is disqualifying. She could always say, well, it hasn't been proven that he's lying because of all the things we've talked about. So I think that's that's her escape valve at this point. Right. I mean, I think, you know, it's in a way, Kavanaugh boxed himself in because he said, this never happened, I was never there at this place, wherever it was, I don't know, you know, I do not know this woman, et cetera, et cetera. And if he had left himself a little more wiggle room, it might be a little different. Like, what if he had said, well, you know, the truth is I did drink too much in those years. I uh, I was spoiled. I was rather heedless. I was not always respectful to women. And over the years, I have really rethought my behavior, and I have tried to be a better person. And I don't think this happened, but I believe she thinks it happened, and I am so sorry for the pain she thinks I caused her. If Brett Kavanaugh had said all of those things, is there such a thing as a satisfactory acknowledgement and apology that would lead you to conclude that this should not be disqualifying? Well, I've already disqualified him because of his terrible, many, many terrible rulings and his probable vote to overturn Roe v. Wade and so on. So I'm probably not the right person to ask. How about the fact that he's the only potential nominee who said a sitting president should not be subject to criminal or civil proceedings while he's in office? Okay, right, there's that too. You know, the philosopher has invented a wonderful word. It's called hympathy. And hympathy, <laughs> H-I-M-pathy, is the tendency that both men and women have to kind of really kind of see things from the man's point of view, see the pain that something causes him as ever so much more important than the pain something causes a woman. And I think there's a lot of empathy that could be mobilized <laughs> for Justice Kavanaugh, for Judge Kavanaugh. If he did do it and wanted to make amends, he could make the whole thing go away with a 
speech of the sort that I suggested. Last question. Of course, this is one of the fastest developing stories of uh, the month, the year. It's a long time between today, Tuesday, when we're taping, and next Monday when the hearing may or may not be held. But I wonder if you'd like to make any predictions about Judge Kavanaugh. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned in my many years of life on this planet that my sense of the future is, is not um, very, very good. I predict he will withdraw. Now, of course, I also predicted Hillary would win. Yeah, well, there it is. I also, I've bet with people that he will withdraw. But really, what do I know? I may be out $5. Katha Pollitt, she wrote about Judge Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford for her new column at thenation.com. Katha, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Such a pleasure. Now it's time to talk about the 10th anniversary of the financial crisis. The New York Times ran a special section on the anniversary on Sunday, and they presented 10 findings. Their number one finding was that, quote, the recovery was a disaster all over again. Seems like a great place to start, especially since we're speaking with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of The American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome. And I wonder if you agree that the recovery was a disaster all over again. Oh, absolutely, because the recovery intensified something that was going on before the crash and uh, was, was one of the reasons why the crash happened, which is it exacerbated the already yawning gap uh, between income going to capital and income going to labor. And since most Americans get their income from their work, this only meant that we, we had a two-speed recovery, very good for profits and for capital and barely discernible for labor. And of course, a great paradox, which, uh, you know, if I see one more article on this, I'm going to scream, is uh, unemployment keeps falling and uh, wages, uh, when you factor in the cost of living, are, are still going nowhere. And for economists who only envision uh, the unemployment rate, who envision that as the only uh, thing that's connected to uh, wage levels, uh, this has been very bewildering. Of course, the fact that there are effectively no more unions, the fact that uh, so much of the work now is, is done by uh, temp workers and independent contractors and gig workers who have no recourse to uh, bolstering incomes. I mean, all, all of this uh, is just an artifact of a disastrous, really disastrous recovery. Yeah, just a couple of facts here. The Typical middle class, middle class families net worth today is still more than $40,000 below where it was in 2007. That's according to the Federal Reserve. They also broke this down by race and ethnicity. In 2016, net worth among white middle income families was 19% below 2007 adjusted for inflation. Among blacks, it was down 40%, and among Hispanics, 46%. So if we were going to point our fingers at the worst, the worst single thing that happened uh, in the recovery, what would you point to? 
I would point to the fact that uh, 8 million families lost their homes and that the government, uh, specifically Barack Obama's Treasury Department under the uh, dubious guidance of Timothy Geithner, made it a priority to make the banks whole, which they are very whole, and did effectively nothing uh, for uh, underwater homeowners. Uh, they, they just let them uh, essentially lose their homes, uh, and uh, we are we are dealing with the... Uh, uh, the outcomes of that today. Uh, that is the single worst uh, decision, I think, uh, that came out of the uh, Obama administration in its eight years in power. Let us talk now about the political consequences of the fact that the recovery was a disaster all over again. Can we draw a line from the failure of Obama on the 8 million foreclosures and the rise of Donald Trump? Well, we can, although it's not simply the uh, the foreclosure issue. It's the uh, the fact that uh, the recovery did not extend to the uh, average American. Uh, and even as unemployment fell, wages stagnated, and the, the, the quality of jobs that were created during most of the recovery, uh, it was not, you know, standard employment as people of your generation and mine conceive it. So, yes, I mean, it did two things. It It drove the Republicans right and it drove the Democrats left. And and we see that in the increasing tendency uh, on the right to blame stagnation on immigrants, other races. Uh, it, it, it exacerbated, as it has in Europe, white nationalism and racism on the right. And it moved the Democrats to the left. In, in, in 2010, Gallup started polling just in reaction to the crash on um, people's opinions of economic systems. And they found in as early as 2010 that while 53% of Democrats said that they had a favorable view of, of capitalism, an equal 53% said they had a favorable view of socialism. Now, when Gallup asked that just a few weeks ago, again, they do it every two years, they found that the percentage of Democrats who have a favorable view of socialism has risen to 57%, and the percentage of those who have a favorable favorable view of capitalism shrank to 47%. So really, this has moved uh, the center-left more to the left and the center-right more into a uh, racist nationalist fury. And to look specifically at voting, you and I have talked many times about the Obama Democrats who switched to Trump. 538.com, Nate Silver's uh, website, has pointed out there are 34 congressional districts that voted for Trump after voting for Obama twice. They tried Yes, We Can in 2008. Yes, We Can did not help them recover from the financial collapse. So they did really what you're supposed to do in a democracy. In the abstract, you vote for the opposition party. They voted for Trump in the hope that he would be able to help them. These are, from our point of view, the key voters that the Democrats need to win back starting right now in the midterm elections. Right. Well, there are two sets of key voters the Democrats need to uh, win uh, in in this election, and that that uh, demographic is certainly one of them. The other, uh, since that demographic is, is is more more heavily white working class, the other is uh, college educated white suburbanites who may have been Republican in the past, but just can't cotton to Trump, as it were. There, and certainly in terms of what has Trump done for the folks in those 34 congressional districts. In terms of, if you look at the economy, if you look at what's happened to the uh, wages of those folks, more of them are employed, but their incomes haven't budged. 
On the other hand, the appeal there has been more uh, the appeal of scapegoating immigrants and uh, and people of color. And, you know, that that's the question. However, you know, all of these groups have subgroups within them, and one of the big subgroups in uh, in America, indeed the largest subgroup or group in America, is called women. And uh, it, it's clear that across the board, Trump is not performing as well with women as he is with men, and that goes includes white women, and it includes white working class women. So there are a lot of these districts that are very much in play right now. And there's another subgroup that we need to talk about. We've talked about the people who switched from Obama to Trump. We've talked about the Republican suburban upper middle class voters, especially women who may not like Trump anymore. The third group we need to talk about is the people who didn't vote at all in the 2016 election. There were 4 million Obama voters who stayed home in 2016. Those people have to be found and motivated along with all the other millions of Americans who don't vote. Right. Well, there's the whole uh, historic issue that the Democratic base, in particular, does not turn out in uh, midterm elections as much as they do in the presidential elections. And you just noted that there was a fall off in uh, the the presidential election of 2016, largely within that base as well. And so a lot of that base is not really necessarily in swing districts if, uh, if they are minority voters. But they will determine a lot of key statewide races. And you, yes. know, you have uh, African-American progressives running for uh, governor in, in Florida, uh, in Georgia, in uh, Maryland. And, and then you have the whole question of turning out the millennial vote. These groups clearly are no fans of Donald Trump, but neither are they vo- uh, groups that have tended to vote at a very high rate in midterm elections. And so a lot of the effort... The Democrats are putting in uh, is is focusing on those constituencies. Uh, the Democratic billionaire Tom Steyer is focusing uh, a, a lot of uh, resources on mobilizing young voters. So that's going on as well. And let's talk about the issues here a little bit. The millions of people who had voted for Obama and then stayed home in 2016. Let's make it clear. They did not want to vote for Hillary. They they did not like Hillary's politics. What kind of issues is it going to take to mobilize those people this fall? Well, some of that was genuinely Hillary, and a lot of that was the way Hillary had been depicted in the media for 30 years. I, I think this is shaping up as an election about Trump. And I think uh, ultimately just sheer Trump hatred, which is utterly justifiable, is I think going to be the main motivating factor Certainly aspects of the economy, certainly uh, his hostility, his racism, uh, his hostility towards minorities, uh, the uh, war on immigrants, on Latinos, on African Americans is certainly one way to boost turnout in those constituencies. Don't you think the Democrats need to have a positive alternative? They just can't be the anti-Trump party. They need to stand for something different from and better than Trump to offer to the people who lost out in the recovery. Absolutely. And uh, in in defending uh, the Affordable Care Act, which the Republicans are in many ways still going after, in uh, many of them campaigning for Medicare for all, there's now a caucus of House Democrats uh, that exceeds 60 members who are uh, in the Medicare for All caucus and more than 40 Democrats running uh, as challengers in swing districts have pledged to Medicare for All. 
uh, campaigning on that, on free public college tuition. It's quite remarkable the degree to which previously even centrist Democrats like uh, New York Senator uh, Kirsten Gillibrand or New Jersey Senator Cory Booker have moved to the left and are, are, are in favor of Medicare for all and planful employment and some policies that not only did you not hear in democratic circles at all a few years ago, but in the case of things like planful employment was only voiced by socialists. And now this stuff is uh, trickling uh, trickling down uh, uh, in, in the best tr- trickle-down tradition to Democrats who wouldn't have touched it uh, five years ago. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks very much. Always great to have you on the show. Always a pleasure to be here, John. Five years ago, in September 1993, on the White House lawn, some of our listeners will remember President Bill Clinton presided over a handshake between PLO Chairman Yasser Arafat and Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, agreeing to the Oslo Accords. We were told they laid the foundation for a permanent peace deal within five years that would create two states side by side. The three men won the Nobel Peace Prize the next year. For comment, we turn to Muin Rabani. He's a senior fellow at the Institute for Palestine Studies. He writes for The Nation and the London Review of Books. He's been a guest on Democracy Now!, Al Jazeera, and the BBC. Muin Rabani, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here. Well, that was 25 years ago. Donald Trump, when he was running for president, pledged something new, a deal of the century was his phrase, a deal of the century that would end the decades-old Mideast conflict. Where do we stand today on the deal of the century? Well, I've characterized it not so much as the ultimate deal as, as Trump and his team like to characterize it, but more as the ultimate fait accompli, meaning that what they're seeking to do, rather than taking the traditional approach of you know, uh, publicizing an initiative and then inviting the parties to negotiate terms, what they're actually doing is trying to change reality on the ground so that their preferred solution takes hold and perhaps then publish a one or two page uh, initiative. And quite clearly from what we've seen so far, we see the Trump administration embracing really the most extreme Israeli agenda in dealing with issues such as not even, you know, uh, calling the Israeli presence in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip an occupation, seeking to define the Palestinian refugee question out of existence, legitimating further settlement expansion, and so on. And of course, um, recognizing uh, Israel's sovereignty over Jerusalem, effectively occupied and annexed East Jerusalem as well, moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv, where it's been situated uh, since the beginning of the conflict, to uh, Jerusalem, and effectively severing diplomatic relations with the Palestine Liberation Organization by shuttering the PLO office, uh, the PLO mission in Washington, D.C., revoking the visas of staff and family members closing their bank accounts and so on. You argue in your new piece in The Nation that uh, Trump's actions over the past 18 months, quote, 
hardly constitute a reversal of U.S. policy. It seems that way to a lot of us. The United States never before had its embassy in Jerusalem, never before closed the PLO mission in Washington, D.C. So what do you mean? The point I was making is, is that it's not as radical a departure from prior U.S. policy as might appear at first sight. So let's take, for example, the closure of the PLO mission in, um, in Washington, the expulsion of, uh, of the Palestinian, the head of the Palestinian mission. The basis for this policy is actually a Senate uh, resolution passed in 1987 called the Anti-Terrorism Act, which made it illegal for the PLO to operate in any way, shape, or form on American soil. And even at the height of the Oslo process, that act was never, uh, was never rescinded. And in fact, in 1987, um, Afif Safia, a Palestinian diplomat who was at the time, I believe, a resident scholar at Harvard University, was expelled from the United States on the basis of that act. And I think it's also important to note that that act was adopted with overwhelming bipartisan support. So it's it's hardly a, a policy that's unique to Trump or even the Republican Party. Secondly, um, uh, during the past several decades, the reason that the PLO has been able to um, uh, maintain a mission in the United States, again, it's not because the U.S. rescinded the Anti-Terrorism Act, but rather because successive administrations would issue six monthly waivers, um, meaning that the definition under U.S. law of, of the PLO as a terrorist organization never changed. And the U.S. throughout these years has dealt with the PLO as a terrorist organization on, uh, on probation. Similarly, if you look at the issue of Jerusalem, this is rooted in bipartisan congressional resolutions that, that were passed with overwhelming uh, majorities of both parties. And the reason that Trump was able to so easily recognize Israeli sovereignty over Jerusalem and move the U.S. embassy there was because he simply stopped issuing the six monthly waivers that previous ad administrations had been issuing. So it's not as if he introduced a entirely new policy, but rather took an existing policy to its logical conclusion. We're talking here on the 25th anniversary of the signing of the Oslo Agreement. I, I wonder if you think the Oslo Accords were doomed from the start. Many Israeli doves say the turning point came two years after Oslo, when Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by an Israeli ultra-nationalist opposed to peace, and that that was the real turning point. What do you think? Well, that's a fairly widespread view, which is that the Oslo Agreement and, and therefore the possibility of an Israeli-Palestinian two-state settlement was killed with the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin and then buried with what by, by all appearances appears to have been the murder of the Palestinian leader, Yasser Arafat. I, I take a very different view, which is I would urge your listeners to read the Oslo Agreement, the, the initial September 90, 1993 agreement. It's only two or three pages long. And when you read that document, you notice that there are certain key terms missing. There is, for example, no mention of the Israeli occupation. 
There's no mention of Palestinian self-determination. There's no mention of a Palestinian independent Palestinian state. There is no agreed framework for the resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, the only framework that's mentioned is UN Security Council Resolutions 242 and 338. And the problem with that is that Israel and the rest of the world, including Palestinians, have incompatible interpretations of what those resolutions mean. Secondly, there is no um, enforceable deadline or schedule for the implementation of those agreements. And in addition to that, there is no binding arbitration mechanism. And so therefore, um, my argument actually since August of 1993, from even before these um, agreements were signed, is that they sought to reformulate the Israeli occupation in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip in the face of the challenges it faced during the first intifada, rather than to find the formula to end it. And so my argument would be the real lesson of the Oslo Agreement is not that um, it failed, but, but that it succeeded all too well. And it's an agreement that remains very much alive today. And the lesson to be learned is that the two-state settlement has effectively never been seriously attempted. Last question on the this anniversary of the Oslo Accords. Yossi Balin was one of the Israeli negotiators in the Oslo talks. He recently said, quote, Trump will not be there forever. Eventually, as it was in Oslo, it's up to the Israelis and the Palestinians. If both sides want to make peace, we will make peace, close quote. That is, the Americans are not the key to what Israel is doing. I wonder if you agree with that. Not really, because I think what we need to recognize is, you know, this is this is not a conflict um, between two states. Um, this this can't be compared, for example, to the conflict between Ethiopia and Eritrea or or any other two states. Uh, uh, you could mention this is, in fact, a colonial struggle between an occupying power and an occupied people. Um, and so the idea that, you know, it can, you simply have to sit these parties around the table um, to deal with each other as equals and reach a solution is not something that's going to happen. And I think the problem here is that the role of the United States has been to, on the one hand, um, monopolize Israeli-Palestinian diplomacy to the exclusion of any other party, whether it's the international community acting through the United Nations or any coalition of, uh, of states. And secondly, the United States being the strategic ally of Israel while considering the other party, the Palestinians, a terrorist organization on probation, as I was saying earlier, um, uh, has acted primarily to not only support Israel, but to shield Israel and its actions from in, from any accountability. In other words, uh, ensuring Israeli impunity in its dealings with the Palestinian people. And so I think this whole formula of bilateral negotiations under exclusive American sponsorship has not only um, demonstrated its absolute failure during the past quarter century, but has also done extraordinary damage to the prospects of, of reaching a just and lasting peace in the Middle East.
Muin Rabani. His article, Trump Team's Magical Thinking on Palestine, appears at thenation.com. Muin, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Finally, a word about this week's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine sports editor Dave Zirin. This week, Dave talks about Serena Williams and the policing of anger. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.